The Israelites disobeyed God, so God allowed Midian to rule over them for seven years. The Israelites tried to hide from the Midianites. They remembered how good life was when they loved and obeyed God. So they cried out to God, save us. The angel of the Lord came and sat under an oak tree. The angel appeared before Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon was confused. Please, sir, Gideon said, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? God chose Gideon to deliver the Israelites from the power of Midian. Gideon was afraid, but God assured him, I will be with you. God told Gideon to tear down the altar to Baal, a false god. Gideon obeyed God, but he did it at night because he was afraid of the men in the city. Sometime later, Gideon blew the ram's horn. The men in his tribe and in the four northern tribes gathered behind him, ready to fight. Gideon wanted a sign from God. If you will help me save Israel, I will put fleece on the ground. If the fleece is wet with dew, but the ground is dry, I will believe you. That is exactly what happened. Gideon asked for another sign. This time, the fleece was dry and the ground was wet. Gideon had too many men in his army. He let anyone who was afraid to go to battle go home. About half the people left. There's still too many, God said. God made a test for the people. All of them went to the river to drink. Anyone who lapped the water with his tongue was sent home. But whoever knelt and used his hand to bring up the water could stay. Three hundred men remained. The next day, Gideon and the army ran down toward the Midianite camp. They carried torches, blew their trumpets, and shattered the pitchers that were in their hands. God turned the swords of the Midianites against each other. Everyone in the Midianite army ran away. Gideon pursued the kings of Midian and killed them. The Israelites said to Gideon, You saved us. Please rule over us. I will not rule over you, Gideon said. God will rule over you. When he died, the Israelites again turned and worshipped other gods. They did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the power of their enemies. The Israelites cried out to God because they knew they could not save themselves. Even Gideon was not enough to save them. God used Gideon to save his people, but God fought the battle for them. The people needed someone who was worthy to save them. Jesus Christ came to save us from sin because we cannot save ourselves. Only God, through Christ, can save us. Adults, if you are growing to love those videos, uh, it's the last one that you're going to see for a while. But you could get involved in children's ministry, and then you could see a whole lot more videos. So just saying that, um, shamelessly. Uh, question for our kids before we start. Kids, uh, would any of you be interested in sharing with us something that you're afraid of? Something that you're scared of? Any kid willing to share something that they're afraid of? Yes. Spiders is a great one. Any other kids afraid of spiders? No, a few. How many adults are afraid of spiders would be a better way to do that. Right. Okay. Uh, the first slide up here has got a snake. I put a picture of a snake there. because Oh, you have something you're... Are you going to share something that you're afraid of? 
Just kidding. You thought about sharing something you were afraid of. Awkwardness is what I'm afraid of. And snakes. Uh, there's a snake on the screen. Uh, we're going to see it in uh, Judges 6 through 8, after moving out of Joshua, where God gives his people the promised land, and now into Judges, where we say, what do God's people do once they've been given the promised land? Uh, how is that going to go? Uh, we're going to see that God's people are living defeated lives, and their defeated lives are defined by fear and hiding. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Judges chapter 6 is where we're going to start. We're going to read the first five or six verses together, and I just want you to see the plight of God's people in the promised land that God has entrusted to them, their lives defined by fear, and I want us to see that God did not intend for them to live lives that are defeated, that are defined by fear and hiding. He does not intend for us to live lives that are defeated, that are defined by fear and by hiding. Judges chapter 6, 1 through 6. It says this, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You have heard that before. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. In other words, they're living like animals, hiding up in the mountains to get away from Midian. Verse 3, For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. They would take everything. This is the bully at school taking your lunch money every single day. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now, chapter 6 is preceded by chapters 4 and 5. That's no surprise to you. But in chapters 4 and 5, we see another cycle where God's people turn their back on him. Their enemies come. God does not prevent their enemies from ruling over them. The people cry out to God, and in remarkable ways, God delivers his people. But his people aren't learning their lesson. They've seen his power, but they're not learning their lesson. So now God has given them into the hands of the Midianites, and it says for seven years. So for seven years, they have been living in a man-made famine where every time it's harvest, the Midianites and these other nations come in and just devour the land, taking everything edible, everything useful, everything that you could plant, harvest, butcher, everything. They destroy the land and this has happened for seven years, such that we now see God's people in hiding in the mountains, trying to eke out a living, trying to just barely get by, hiding. They are living defeated lives, and their defeated lives are defined by fear and by hiding. 
we see that they have not lived up to their part of the deal. God has made a deal with them. God's people have not lived up to their part of the deal. And so God sends them a prophet in, in Judges 6.10. And the prophet's message is, is very simple. You brought this upon yourself by worshiping the false gods in the land of Canaan. This is your own doing. Your lives look more like culture around you than like what God instructed you to do. Judges 6.10 says this. This is the words of the prophet to the people of Israel, essentially saying, you are guilty. Verse 10 says, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods. Or in other words, you shall not worship them. You shall not revere them. You shall not seek protection from them. You shall not seek provision from them. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then the last part of verse 10, it says, but you have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my voice. And, and so we see that the issue for God's people is not, do they know who he is? They know who he is. The issue for God's people is not, do they know what he wants of them? They know what he wants of them. The issue for God's people is they are not acknowledging him as Lord of their lives. They know who he is, they know what he wants, and they have failed to acknowledge him as Lord of our lives. And I wonder if that's a situation that maybe some of us find ourselves in, possibly even here uh, this morning. And, and one of the ways that we see that uh, is, is at times we will give the Lord 5% of our life and 95% of it is on our terms. 95% of our life is uh, advocating for things that we want, things that make us comfortable, things that are interesting to us, sort of life on our terms, responding, reacting the way we want to. We give God 5%, maybe that's Sunday morning from 9 to noon, and maybe a little bit of time during the week and can't figure out why he's not satisfied with our leftovers. Can't figure out why we don't see God's power in our life as we give him our leftovers. Can't figure out why we are uh, dissatisfied, why we feel a spiritual fracturing, a, a frailty when we give him our leftovers. And, and so the people have barely given him their leftovers. And as a result, they're living a defeated life uh, defined by fear and by hiding in the mountains and in the caves. Uh, not just that, but the issue for God's people is not... Uh, does God have power? He has shown them his power through repeated deliverance. The issue for God's people uh, is not him abandoning them. He has repeatedly come to their rescue. In fact, in the book of Judges, we see about six times this cycle happen of disobedience, judgment. People cry out to God and God rescues his people, but only once in chapter 10 do we get the sense that the people have actually repented of their sin and are intending to turn from their wicked ways. So it's not a function of, does God have power? We haven't seen his power. Is God near? We're not sure if he's near. They have repeatedly begged him to fix their circumstances and failed to repent for the sin that got them into their circumstances. And I think, again, this is something that we see happen in our lives where we go to God and beg him to fix something that we believe is broken or some aspect of powerlessness uh, that we experience and then fail to follow him. 
we want him to fix our circumstances and we think everything will be better and we fail to repent and to follow him. So the people are living defeated lives. Those defeated lives are defined by fear and by hiding. And, and so God comes to his man Gideon and uh, this picks up in, in verse 11 and, and so forth. And uh, God sees him and Gideon is in a wine press uh, preparing the grain to make it edible. And so this is a significant thing because that's not where you do that job. You do that in, in like a threshing floor, not in a wine press. And so what we understand is that Gideon is hiding. This isn't where that job is supposed to be done. He's there because he's hiding, not wanting to be seen, not wanting to be noticed, not wanting his enemies to uh, see what he's doing. Uh, and so Gideon's life also is defined by by fear and by hiding. And God comes to him and God says, O mighty man of valor. O mighty man of valor. And there's a variety of ways that we might see that those words of the Lord, maybe God knew that underneath this very soft and fragile exterior was a mighty man of valor. Maybe God knew that with God's help, Gideon could become a mighty man of valor. But to me, it kind of feels like maybe one of you coming up to me and saying, Greeting, Nathan, O skilled hunter, or O master craftsman, or fishing genius. I would say, no, you're, you're crazy. That is not who I am, and, and you're nuts. It's actually not a reflection of me. Something's wrong with you. And Gideon says to God, You're, you're crazy. Judges 6, verse 13. Well, verse 12 it says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Verse 13, Gideon doesn't waste any time showing the frailty of his faith. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now, the last part of 13, but now the Lord has forsaken us. And has given us into the hand of Midian. Do you see where Gideon is at with the Lord? God, if you're real, why have bad things happened? What does Gideon think God's job is to do for his people? Keep bad things from happening. God, if you're real, why have bad things happened? God, if you're real, where are the good things that we've been told that you've done? I'm not seeing any good things on top of that, Gideon says, what have you done for me lately? We have heard about what you did for our fathers. We have heard about what happened in Egypt. What have you done for me lately? And then finally, Gideon says, if you are here, if there is a God, he has forsaken us. He has abandoned us. He has given us into the hands of Midian. Isn't it amazing that Gideon, who we will see later, is an idol worshiper from an idol-worshipping family with no merit whatsoever to stand before God. No sparkling report card, all A's, to say, God, I get a seat at the table and I get to ask you a question. Uh, and here Gideon, with nothing to offer, no faith whatsoever, says, God, you have failed me. You have failed me. Us. And so we see that the posture of an obstinate and an unrepentant heart is often a posture of finger pointing 
and blaming. What would it have been like if Gideon would have fallen to his knees and said, oh God, I am not worthy. What would you have your servant to do? That's not how Gideon responds. He says, God, you have failed us. God says, I'm going to do this great work. Gideon, I'm going to rescue the people. I'm going to do it through you. Uh, you'd think, okay, well, well, maybe Gideon talking to the Lord is going to say, all right, let's go, God. Uh, we know that's not true. Verse 15 uh, of Judges uh, 6 says this, and he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon says, come on, God, have you not seen me with a sword? Let's be honest, I'm not good. Gideon says, I am the weakest in my clan, and my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Um, if Gideon were here and, and the story was unfolding in front of us, wouldn't we be tempted to say, Gideon, it doesn't matter what kind of military expertise you have or don't have. God is with you. Wouldn't we say, Gideon, it doesn't matter if you're good with a sword or terrible with a sword. God goes with you. It doesn't matter. Wouldn't we say, Gideon, it doesn't matter if you're scared or not. It doesn't matter how many Midianites there are or how many Hebrews there are. God goes with with you. And so it's so easy throughout the entirety of the Old Testament for us to point the finger at Gideon, to point the finger at Israel who squanders God's blessings repeatedly, point the finger at Gideon who is faithless and doubting and fearful, even though God has said he will go with him and say, what's wrong with them? I can't believe they would doubt. I would never. And so it just doesn't take very long as we look at our own hearts and lives to discover that we're not that much different from Gideon. I look at my kids and I have nervousness. I have fear about what the future holds for them because I feel like I'm not a good enough dad. I look at the future for our church and I, I get nervous every time, every Sunday to stand up here before you and, and there's fear because I don't feel like I'm a good enough pastor. I look at marriage and the life that Nicole and I want to have together uh, in the Lord and I feel like I'm not a good enough husband. And so isn't it interesting that we point the finger at Gideon and then we do the very same thing? Aren't many of us scared to speak against sin, speak uh, the power of Jesus? We don't feel good enough. We don't feel spiritual enough. We don't feel like we have all of the right answers. We don't feel like we know the Bible enough. And the whole point of every single character in the Old Testament is, is God saying, no, Gideon's not good enough. He's not strong enough. He's not a great military expert. He's not a mighty warrior. That's okay. You don't need to be because God goes with you. Why is Gideon afraid? Gideon is in the very undesirable situation of discovering that life and the position that he's in is over and above his pay grade, okay? When you turn your back on the Lord, you become master and commander of your own life, and that job is above all of our pay grades. I don't know if any of you watch NASCAR. Um, don't raise your hands because I think it's a very boring sport. Um, <laughs> and then I apologize to those of you who that is offensive towards. But those cars go fast. 220, 230 miles per hour. Those cars go really fast. It would be really neat to be in one of those cars. But what would we discover about a second and a half after turning those cars on and seeing people drive past us? 
right, we would discover that we were in over our heads and that driving a NASCAR race car is way above our pay grade. It would be terrifying, right? You, you wouldn't actually want to do that. You can pay a lot of money in Las Vegas and do that with no cars on the lap on the track, but you'd be terrified in real life. Uh, some of you are baseball fans and you think, how great would it be to be in there in a major league baseball stadium and to be up to bat? It wouldn't be fun at all because a hundred mile an hour fastball coming right at your head would cause you to drop to ground or freeze in terror. It wouldn't be something you would enjoy. It'd be very embarrassing, and you would hope that no one would take a picture or have video of what you did or a noise that you possibly made once the baseball left the pitcher's hand because you're over your head. It's above your pay grade. Kids, some of you have maybe at one point told your mother or father, I can't wait till I'm the mom, I can't wait till I'm the dad, and I get to make the rules. I can't wait till my kids get to make the rules. I can't wait to watch them get to make the rules. Kids, if you've said that to your parents, they can't wait to watch you make the rules. They are also looking forward to that day. It's easier said than done. Gideon finds himself over his pay grade. Uh, He has turned his back on the Lord and discovered he doesn't have what it takes. Uh, We see that in in Judges 6, uh, 29 through 30. Um, God gives Gideon a command. He says, Gideon, you need to go offer a sacrifice. He says, Gideon, before you offer that sacrifice, you need to tear down these two... Uh, items that are used for worship of false gods, of pagan gods, of Canaanite gods. You need to destroy them, and you need to offer two bulls sacrifice to me, the Lord says. And, and you know what Gideon does? Gideon does it in the middle of the night. See, his family, his clan, his community has become so corrupt. They have so turned their back on the Lord that to simply do what God had commanded is going to carry death threats. That's how corrupt they've become, Gideon and his family. Uh, Gideon carries it out, uh, and in verse 28 records what happens when the city wakes up. Judges 6:28. when the men of the town arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built, and they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. He has broken down the altar and he has cut down the Asherah beside it. And and so what what we see is that Gideon doesn't have any merit to stand before God. Gideon's family has done nothing to earn God's favor, to earn his rescuing hand. Uh, And we always just want to pause and and be reminded that that is the situation we all find ourselves in before Christ rescues us, before Christ saves us. Some of you are familiar with Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned, right? For all have sinned. For all are guilty. For all have missed God's mark. Uh, Romans 3, verse 10, Paul adds to this a little bit more, reminding us that it's not just Gideon who missed the mark. It's not just the Israelites in the Old Testament who floundered. 
that it was each of us before Christ rescued us. Uh, Romans 3, uh, 10, Paul writes, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says something similar as he's speaking to an audience and he lists um, sins that they would agree with are, are, are horrible. And Paul looks at his audience and says, such were some of you. These are the things that you did before the Lord. And so, again, we just don't want to distance ourselves from the story. We don't want to separate ourselves and believe that we are so much different than they are. Uh, Gideon and his family are wholly corrupted and have discovered that they are way over their head, that they cannot be master and commander of their own lives. That's too big a job. It is reserved for one person only. God's patience and God's power overcome our fear. He did not intend for his people to live in fear. He does not intend for us to live in fear. And the second point this morning is simply that his patience and his power overcome our fear. We're going to see his patience uh, a couple of times here uh, with Gideon and and read through chapter 6 and read through chapter 7. And it's really remarkable the incredible patience God has with Gideon's doubt. And he does that so that through Gideon's doubt and through these circumstances, he can show Gideon and these people his power. One of the things that some of you are familiar with that God does is uh, God tells Gideon we're going to do this. And and what does Gideon say? Prove it. Give me a sign. And so this is not an evidence of great faith. This is an evidence of doubt. Gideon's like, if you're going to send me this, you better give me a sign as if it's not enough that God has told him. It's not enough that God has instructed him. Gideon needs a sign. And so he says, God, make the uh, make the blanket wet and the ground dry. God does it. And you can almost see Gideon going, oh, shoot. (laughs) He did it. Uh, uh, God, make the ground wet and the blanket dry. Try that. And God does that also. And so we see that God is remarkably patient with Gideon's doubt for the purpose of showing Gideon and all of Israel his power. God is so gracious, so patient, in fact, with his doubt that he actually sends Gideon to the perimeter of the Midianites' army and says, go. And it, it's, again, it's, there's all sorts of humor uh, in these three chapters. But God says, if you're scared, you can take this friend. Like, how would you like that recorded in Scripture about you? God calls you to do something and then lists your name and says, if you're scared, take this friend. And the very next verse is you and that friend going to do exactly what God has said. He sends them to the perimeter of the army and they get down there and they overhear a conversation from soldiers recounting a dream that they had had that indicated that Gideon would come and would destroy their army. And so they're sitting in the bushes overhearing this conversation. Again, we see God is so patient. God is so patient with his people in spite of their doubts, in spite of their weaknesses, in spite of their past, in spite of their failings, in spite of our past, in spite of our failings, in spite of our doubt, in spite of our fear. It says the Spirit of God uh, comes upon Gideon, uh, and then chapter 7, it kind of gets fun. Uh, 
because God's concerned that if he helps his people, they're going to take credit for what he's done. And the entire lesson will be lost. They won't be any closer to him than when they started, which means they'll just repeat the sin and the patterns and the habits that got them into this mess. Uh, And so God is going to take Gideon's army from about 32,000 to about 300 for the purpose of showing a small army and a small nation that they serve a big God, for the purpose of showing a weak nation and a weak army that they serve a powerful God. Let's pick it up in er, Judges 7. Uh, 1 through 7. This is God uh, thinning the herd. It says, Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So two-thirds of the people, when given the chance to flee for their lives, fled for their lives. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Imagine getting that message from God. Uh, Gideon, your, your army is still too strong. Uh, I bet Gideon had a response. The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and I will give the Midianites into your hand, and let all others go, every man, to his own home. You see that the Lord intentionally makes them underdogs, so that they can see that with him they're never truly an underdog. They see that he intentionally puts them at a disadvantage so that they will see that when he leads them, when he's in charge, when they follow him, they are never at a disadvantage. They are never alone. They are never undermanned. They are never overmatched. He makes them powerless so they will discover his power. One of the things that we see is the biggest problem for Israel was not Midian. It was not the Midianites. It was not seven years of a man-made famine. It wasn't the fact that their enemies outnumbered them a hundredfold or more. The biggest problem, the biggest issue for Israel was their sin. God says, if I rescue you from the Midianites, but we don't address this sin thing, you will boast and you will be right back where you started before this whole mess began. God intentionally makes them underdogs. He intentionally makes them weaker than their opponent. He intentionally 
brings them up against an overmatched enemy so they can discover the patient power of God that is bigger than everything that is in front of them. And so I just would encourage you, for, for those of you that are in circumstances right now where you're, you're feeling overmatched or you're feeling like the underdog or you're feeling like you're coming at this from a position of weakness uh, and, and feeling like maybe that's evidence that God's not in it or feeling like maybe that's evidence that your faith is in some way inferior, uh, I would say God often makes us underdogs so that we discover that it's not about our military expertise, it's not about our ability to wield a sword, it's about following him, and that when we follow him, we are never overmatched. Now, uh, in the rest of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, uh, God does exactly what he promised, he, and always does. He gives them the victory with 300 men, they go and they conquer all of the Midianites, Midianites are on the run, and, and so you might think, wow, that's a good, happy ending right? The people are in need. They cry out to God. God, the hero, the rescuer, comes and delivers his people, and they live happily ever after. And we get a small taste that some good has happened. Uh, Judges 8.23 records when Gideon has come back from victory, and the people of the town rush out to him, and they want to make him king. This is Gideon's response, verse 23 of chapter 8. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. He says, the Lord will rule over you. I will not, my son will not, the Lord will rule over you. You have a king if you will acknowledge him as such. You have a ruler, you have a Lord if you will acknowledge him as such. And so we think, all right, Gideon's getting it. Gideon was weak, with God he was strong. Gideon was small, with God he was large. Gideon was inexperienced, lacked expertise, with God he had everything that he needed. Not so fast. Um, chapter Verses 20 through, 22 through 28 record essentially the last uh, chapter, uh, the last recorded chapter of Gideon's life, and he does... Three things that uh, really just are not good examples for us or for the people. Um, first of all, uh, he says, I will not be your king. And then he asks for an enormous sum of money as payment for his heroic victory. Uh, secondly, he's going to build an ephod. It's a chest plate type piece that priests used uh, to discern the will of the Lord. Wasn't supposed to do that. Built it anyway. Ignored the instructions of the Lord. That became a huge issue. And then the third thing that he does is he takes in this huge harem of wives. And it says, I think, like 70 sons are born to him. And the emphasis of the text with the numbers and the size of this harem of wives is essentially to say, he said, I will not be king but he went and tried to then live like a king. Uh, and, and so it's no surprise that at the end of the chapter, as Gideon dies, the people turn their back on him and turn their back on God. And so there's just a, a, couple, a couple takeaways uh, from this last chapter of Gideon's life. And uh, the first takeaway is this. Gideon proves that it is often easier to live for the Lord in a moment 
than a lifetime of moments. It's often easier to live for the Lord in a moment than in a lifetime of moments. And we see that uh, Gideon does what the Lord has asked of him, uh, but then Gideon trips over his own feet. And when given the opportunity, he takes hold of as much as he can get his hands on, which leads us to the second takeaway. Uh, Gideon reminds us that comfort and prosperity in this life are often detrimental to our faith, are often detrimental to our dependence upon God. And, and so in some ways, the story of Gideon is a cautionary table to be careful when God has blessed us with prosperity, to be careful when God has blessed us with victory, because it's not until Gideon is blessed with victory that he really makes a big mess of things. Third, Gideon reminds us that it doesn't matter much about what we say, uh, that it matters infinitely more what we do. Gideon said all the right things. I will not be your king. My son will not be your king. Interestingly enough, Gideon names, uh, one of the names for one of his sons is my father, the king. Um, so he says one thing and he does another. He says, I will not be your king. God will be your king. And then he goes and he tries to live like a king. Uh, fourth, Gideon reminds us that God transforming our circumstances, but not our hearts, leads to further enslavement and not the freedom that we desire, that he has for us, and that we need. Uh, and, and so for, for many in this room uh, who are praying earnestly for circumstances right now, continue to go to the Lord with those circumstances. Continue to believe and know and trust that he sees, that he hears, that he wants to know everything about your life that he cares like a best friend. I have a mom who asks a thousand questions. What did we eat? Where did we go? What was traffic like on the way? Did we see anything interesting while we were driving? How did the kids do on the drive? I, I just want to say we got there. Like, that's it. We got there. Uh, she wants to know all of the details. We have a God who cares about the details of our lives. And so take those things to him. But understand that like Israel, the problem really wasn't the Midianites. The problem really wasn't their circumstances. The issue was that they refused to acknowledge God as Lord and repent of their sin and turn and follow him. And because of that, they lived defeated lives and their existence was defined by fear and by hiding. And only the patient power of God can overcome our defeated lives and lives and existences defined by fear and hiding. And that it is not what God wants for us. Uh, the New Testament, Old Testament, countless verses you can look up about what the Bible says about fear and the fact that the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear. Uh, David in the Psalms repeatedly uh, says things like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He's not saying life isn't scary. He's not saying life isn't difficult. Please don't hear from me this morning uh, that some of the health diagnosis that many of you have gotten even in the last month are not scary. They are scary. They are difficult. Some of the situations going on in your families that you've been so kind to share uh, with me and with others are scary, are difficult. And the point that David says is it, it's not that it's not scary. It's that uh, I will fear no evil when you are with me. Your power is bigger than what is before me. We understand 
that Gideon wasn't a great judge. Really, none of the judges in, in Judges uh, were all that, uh, that amazing. And, and so the point is, is that we don't have to have all our spiritual ducks in a row uh, to be used by God. Uh, Jesus will, will say, come follow me. And then Jesus goes to work cleaning up the mess that we've made. And some of us feel like we have to clean up all the mess before we can follow Jesus. We have to clean up all the mess before we can be used by the Lord. And so... I hope that you would hear this morning the call of Jesus on your life is to come follow him and entrust all of that stuff uh, to him. Uh, God used Gideon in spite of Gideon's past, in spite of Gideon's family, in in spite of Gideon's doubt, in spite of Gideon's fear, in spite of the fact that even when God told Gideon what he was going to do, Gideon didn't believe that God was actually going to do it and asked for test after test. uh, We see the patience of God. We see the power of God even over his people's fear in spite of their repeated failures. And so if you're here this morning and the enemy is keeping you from the Lord because of something going on in your life or something in your past causing you to believe you are useless to the Lord, that he couldn't possibly love you, I hope that, that you see in Gideon the patience of God and then the power, power of God over those circumstances and the power of God over the fear that enslaved them. It is the Lord's desire to set you free from that, set you free onto solid ground, free to serve him. The song that we're going to conclude this morning with uh, says, uh, I am no longer a slave to fear. Not because I have broken out of the chains, not because I have become so righteous that I now am free of all fear. Uh, It says, because I am a child of God. It is God's power. Jesus is the great judge. Jesus is the judge that offers permanent deliverance and freedom. And as we see the shortcomings of his vessels, the shortcomings of the leaders he used, uh, it points us to the perfection. It points us to the perfectness. It points us to the holiness. It points us to the righteousness of our just judge, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that um, like Gideon, we look around at our circumstances. Uh, We take an inventory, um, and often we decide very quickly that we can't do what you've asked of us. We can't be useful for your purposes, for your kingdom that surely you must have someone else in mind. And so would you forgive us for making that judgment about your power and about your goodness. Forgive us, Lord, for for doubting who you are and what you've promised to do. Uh, Lord, for those here this morning that are enslaved to fear, that their existence in life is defined by fear and hiding. Lord, in the stillness of of this morning. Lord, may they cling to you and discover maybe for the very first time the freedom that is available in Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus, our just judge who offers permanent deliverance. Lord, thank you for your patience in our lives. May we not be like the Israelites, may we repent of our sin. 
May we acknowledge you as Lord of life for all our lives. Lord, may we give you access to all of lives, may our life. May we invite you into all aspects of our life. Lord, that we might be and be used for all that you intend. Lord, would you do everything you need to do in us to do everything that you want to do through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.